This episode of AHLA Speaking of Health Law is brought to you by AHLA members and donors like you. For more information, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org. Hello, my name is Kevin Siebes. I am an attorney that practices in the healthcare group at the firm Morin Van Allen, based in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, my practice focuses on healthcare-related transactions and advising clients on applicable state and federal healthcare law and regulations. And uh, I'm really excited to be joined by my colleague Derek Scooge, uh, who is a principal at PricewaterhouseCoopers today, to to talk about. Uh, the latest ACO model from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, ACO Realizing Equity, Access, and Community Health model, more commonly known as the ACO REACH model. Um, so Derek, you want to say a few words about yourself? Sure. Uh, yep. It's, uh, Derek Skoog here. So I, I lead our health actuarial practice and really spend a lot of time uh, helping uh, entities, whether they're payers or providers or just broadly health services companies, think about uh, value-based care and risk-based contracting in particular and, and how they really ought to position themselves for, for success and, and, uh, and really set themselves up for a, a long-term uh, route to, to delivering value for uh, themselves and their pair of partners, but, but particularly for the, the patients that they serve. So really looking forward to the conversation. Great. Um, you know, and before we get started, I'll just do the uh, the honors of providing the obligatory disclaimer that all of the views, statements, and opinions expressed by Derek and myself are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of our respective organizations. Um, but you know, I think before we we're going to explore the the model's payment mechanisms, aspects of the model's benchmarking methodology, and some key compliance issues related to the model. But before we dive into that, I think it's probably uh, probably helpful to do some level setting background information on ACO Reach. So ACO Reach is a uh, it's a redesigned population based model that replaced the global professional direct contracting model on January first, twenty twenty three, and. It's a Section 1115A model, and as many of the listeners probably know, Section 1115A was added to the Social Security Act by the Affordable Care Act, which established CMMI for the purpose of testing innovative payment and service delivery models uh, to reduce program expenditures while preserving and enhancing quality of care furnished uh, to individuals under those programs. And so ACO reaches uh, one of these these models. And because it's a redesigned model, there are two ways an ACO could have ended up in REACH. Um, the first is an ACO uh, could have been participating in the GPDC model uh, and then transitioned into ACO REACH when it went live this year on January 1st. Um, or uh, an ACO could have applied as a new ACO um, into the REACH model last year. And so to give you a flavor of the breakdown, uh, there's based on CMS's announcement in January, there are 132 ACOs participating in the model, 48 of which are new participants and 84 of which are carryovers from GPDC. Uh, and I think it's also important to note that the, the model application deadline was April 22nd of last year. And CMS has stated that it's it doesn't anticipate that it will be accepting applications for new ACOs into the model. So therefore, as of right now, 
no new ACOs can join the model. However, it's there are 132 ACOs currently participating, as I stated, with over a million, uh, two million beneficiaries aligned to these ACOs. So it, you may have clients that are providers that are considering joining a REACH ACO or potentially lenders um, that are considering lending to or investors that are considering investing in um, an ACO that's in this model. So having some familiarity with the model and how it works, I think is is valuable for uh, for a healthcare practitioner's pra uh, lawyer's practitioner's practice. Um, so, Derek, you know, I'm now that we've gone through that background. Why would why do you, why would you why do you think providers participate in ACO reach? And what are some common char characteristics that you see among participants? Yeah, it's a, a good couple of questions there. I think one uh, maybe is an entry point, um, it, it does require an appetite for risk. So um, the, the providers that we see jumping into ACO reach, but just uh, CMS's ACO uh, models within Medicare more broadly, uh, ha have a, uh, a desire to take on some amount of financial risk. And that's often uh, driven in part by the, the motivation that or the thought that uh, they're creating value in excess of the fee-for-service billings that they're creating. Uh, and it, for a primary care physician or primary care practice, uh, it, it's pretty uh, easy to imagine how that might be the case, right? So to the extent that they are spending time being really thoughtful about care referrals or care coordination uh, and, and just sort of connecting the dots with, within a very uh, disconnected healthcare system, uh, those might not be uh, particularly uh, billable encounters necessarily, but, but will certainly add value to the member and often result in either better quality outcomes or uh, better cost outcomes. And so uh, certainly the providers that are entering into the REACH model have an appetite for, for taking on risk and, and basically put, putting uh, some skin in the game, so to speak. Uh, but, but why uh, ACO REACH in particular, as opposed to say MSSP or, or other potential risk models? Um, and, and really the, the main couple of drivers there one, a desire to have a little bit more model flexibility. So uh, MSSP or the Medicare Shared Savings Program, it's a little bit more rigid in, in its program design. Uh, and so uh, ACOs have a little bit less uh, in terms of the levers they can pull. Uh, and then the other uh, interest area that we see that's a little bit more unique to each ACO reach participants or reach ACOs is an interest in health equity and, and really designing uh, care plans and care models around uh, serving historically underserved populations or high need populations that uh, is a little bit more in focus than in, uh, in the other ACO models. And then maybe the, the last bit is perhaps more, more financial and, and slightly more cynical uh, view. It, and it's that um, uh, ultimately uh, that they view that there's a risk reward trade-off, as I mentioned, but the cash flows and revenue recognition of the ACO REACH model are, are, are certainly uh, a little bit more uh, advantageous than, than that of the MSSP model, where uh, there's uh, more significant monthly cash flows that are coming through, and there's a higher likelihood of being able to recognize a much larger revenue stream than you might otherwise. Uh, and so th those tend to be uh, some of the drivers. And, and then when you said, what are some of the common characteristics of ACO regenities, I'd say one, they, they tend to be MSO-like 
entities or management service organizations that are at, often aggregating providers onto their, their risk platform. Um, you know, they, they're maybe second to that. They're often independent physician groups. You don't tend to see a whole lot of integrated delivery systems in the ACO reach model, uh, but, but there's certainly interest there to, to participate perhaps with one of those MSO-like uh, entities as well. So uh, there's, even though the application window and is closed, there is still uh, certainly the, the chance to participate uh, alongside an existing reach entity and, and join their participating roster. And then the last thing that kind of makes ACO reach entities uh, a little bit different from other providers is it is a little bit disproportionately urban still, um, still trying to, to crack the, the VBC and risk contract uh, rural uh, issue that uh, MSSP had, um, maybe a, a half step uh, in, in the right direction here, but um, still disproportionately urban uh, and, and still some headroom for growth, I, I, I'll say, in the in the rural settings. Yeah, no, that that's great, and I think you know the you touched on the point of the flow of funds, um, and you know, and when I've reviewed this model, I've I've always found that the the flow of funds is is fairly, or the flow of funds is fairly complex, or just the payment mechanisms are fairly complex, and you know, I, I think. When I conceptualize it, I try to simplify the flow of funds into four four transactions, and you know that's not um, it, it is a generalization, and you probably miss some nuance there. But I think it's helpful to to put it in that framework to understand it, um, to understand what's going on with the the flow of funds, and you know in my mind the the first transaction is. Um, the ACO participant and preferred providers submit claims to CMS uh, for services that they render uh, and then to their patients and then CMS reimburses the providers for those uh, for those claims but subject to the fee reduction that the, uh, the participant provider or preferred provider agrees to with the ACO. Um, so second, the second transaction would be CMS pays a monthly uh, risk-adjusted capitation payment for managing the care of the beneficiaries aligned to it. Um, the third transaction after that, the ACO pays the um, its providers based on the negotiated uh, consideration for whatever uh, the, the provider agreed to take as fee reduction, which we talked about in the first transaction. And then the fourth is the distribution of shared savings or losses between the CMS and ACO based on the, the, the final reconciliation from um, actual expenditures to benchmark. And I'll note that, you know, Derek mentioned that there's risk, uh, appetite, it's organizations that are um, interested and have an appetite for risk. In ACO reach, there are two risk sharing um, lot, uh, options, and that is the professional, which is 50%, and then the global, which is 100%. Um, I, but, um, you know, I think I think it's probably worth exploring a little more of that second transaction that I talked about, which is the, the risk-adjusted capitation payment. Um, so this is really, it's, it's a PBPM payment, and there are two payment mechanisms under ACO reach. There's total care capitation and primary care capitation, uh, each of which are 
based on the, the beneficiaries aligned to the ACO and the, the calculated benchmark for the ACO. And so under TC, the total care capitation, TCC, basically an ACO receives a monthly capitated payment to estimate all covered services furnished to aligned beneficiaries subject to fee reduction. Um, and then for PCC, professional or primary care capitation, ACOs received capitated payments that estimate the total cost of primary care services furnished by ACOs, ACOs providers subject to fee reduction. Um, I'll also note that an ACO can receive APO payments. And I, I think um, if they choose the PCC payment mechanism. I think of these as essentially capitated payments for the non-primary care services uh, for an, um, subject to fee reduction. So they're kind of like gap fillers um, between PCC and TCC. Um, so, you know, Derek, I think it's probably worth talking a little bit more about how the benchmark is calculated. Um, it's a highly technical process. I think without visuals and more time, it's probably not feasible to get to all the technical details. But you know, generally, I think of the benchmark is it, the, it, base, it starts with the baseline of the historical expenditures for the ACOs aligned beneficiaries. And then it's adjusted to account for regional trends, current healthcare costs, risk, health equity, and among other things. Um, but I, there are some features I think that are worth exploring in more detail. I'm thinking particularly about risk adjustment, retroactive change adjustment, um, and new health, the new health equity benchmark. So Derek, you wanna talk a little bit more about those? Yeah, yeah, they're, they're really all three interesting uh, dimensions to this that, that REACH ACO program has, has taken uh, sort, sort of a new flavor uh, to how uh, they want to incentivize plans. So, so maybe first starting on the risk adjustment side, um, backing up from ACO reach for a second, uh, the Medicare Shared Savings Program uh, has existed for quite some time and has had, uh, just bluntly, a, a fairly arbitrary cap on the growth in, in risk scores or normalized risk scores, rather, for any particular ACO between their third benchmark year and any performance year where uh, your risk score on a normalized basis can't grow by more than 3%. Uh, that's fairly arbitrary, as I mentioned, because let's say uh, you are seeing a, a materially different and, and let's say a sicker patient population and your risk score uh, will have gone up 10%, um, then uh, sort of you're out of luck and, and you're kind of stuck with that, that 3% growth. Uh, the ACO REACH program is, is a little bit different um, and has uh, a couple layers of, of normalization for, for risk score. Uh, that I think try and get to some of the criticism of risk adjustment, which has been that there's uh, a bit of a coding arms race uh, and, and you continue to see investments in uh, clinical condition documentation as opposed to clinical outcomes. Uh, and so there's a couple of coding elements that are added uh, to the risk adjustment model within REACH, which are uh, not just normalization, but also a coding intensity factor where uh, you're being judged against uh, the broader ACO reach population and, and normalized uh, again. Uh, and then there's a contemplation for um, uh, your actual demographic change over time. So 
there's just a, a lot more nuance uh, to the new risk adjustment calculation. Um, still, uh, with, with with caps in place, not not sort of where I think many actuaries would would argue that uh, actuarial soundness might imply where a risk adjustment program ought to land, but it, perhaps a half step in the right direction relative to what we saw with uh, MSSB. Um, and a couple of the other uh, points that you mentioned, one is on the retrospective trend adjustment. This one actually caught many participating REIT ACOs uh, by surprise in their first participation year. And, and that's really because uh, ACOs were more or less under the impression that when they entered into the program, their benchmarks were more or less known in advance. Uh, as it turned out, uh, there was a, a clause that allowed CMS to the extent that benchmarks were over or under projected by more than 1%. Uh, they, CMS had the right to go back and apply a retrospective trend adjustment on a national basis to adjust benchmarks up or down. In this case, uh, what we ended up seeing was substantial decreases in benchmarks at the ACO level. Uh, so uh, what would have or would have otherwise been a feature for the ACO REACH program, which was stable benchmarks relative to uh, MSSP, or MSSP, there's a whole lot of uncertainty around exactly what your benchmark is because it's a function of uh, regional and national cost trend. Uh, MS, uh, rather, ACO REACH was supposed to have sort of solved for that with this, this retrospective, excuse me, with, with this uh, rate book that's utilized. Um, and, and alas, uh, uh, it ended up being uh, just as tricky, frankly, to estimate your, your benchmark for REACH. And that certainly frustrated uh, participants. Um, and, and that is unlikely to go away anytime soon, given just the, the challenges of, of estimating claims trend these days. And that, that last point that you mentioned, I think is really interesting. It's maybe the, the first example of CMMI really putting their money where their mouth is when it comes to the goal of health equity. And that's explicitly paying uh, an, uh, an incentive uh, to providers who are serving uh, really the most underserved or most historically underserved uh, beneficiaries as measured by area deprivation index. Um, and so uh, to the extent that you're seeing kind of the, the, the least served decile of beneficiaries, you get a, a roughly $13 uh, kicker uh, to your benchmark, which it, which is not nothing. It's, it's not uh, game changing perhaps, but but it's definitely a decent incentive to, to make sure you've got programs to enroll uh, uh, historically dis, uh, underserved populations. And, and that's, uh, it's really exciting just getting creative, frankly, with how we create incentives for, for providers and risk-bearing entities to, to uh, solve some of the historical <clears throat> uh, challenges that we, we've had with health equity across the industry. Yeah, it, and I mean, it, it goes in, in hand with CMMI's uh, sort of plans and goals that it stated at the end of 2021, where it, it, ha it said you know, that health equity is a big focus for them going forward. So yeah, I, I agree. It's, it is, as you said, putting their money where their mouth is. Um, but, you know, I, I think it, it's interesting because so you, you're, you're right in that we're looking at the, okay, so these beneficiaries, you how are they aligned though to the ACO? And I think it's an important question for people to understand 
those mechanics. And you know, beneficiaries are aligned to an ACO through the ACO's participant providers. Um, essentially, your, your participant providers are listed on the ACO's participant provider list, whereas preferred providers are listed on the ACO's preferred provider list. I'll note that there's some um, differences that result from being a participant provider versus a preferred provider. Uh, for example, as we'll talk a little bit about later, 75% of the ACO's governing body must be controlled by participant providers. And also, you know, participant providers must take fee reduction, whereas preferred providers can choose to take fee reduction. So that because of those factors, it, where a participant, where a provider lands, whereas it's whether it's participant or preferred, um, it will will differ. Um, the, the one thing I'll note is that uh, because beneficiaries are aligned uh, voluntarily, or the one thing I'll note is beneficiaries can be aligned either voluntarily uh, or through claims-based alignment. And um, the claims-based alignment is essentially we're, we're looking at the plurality of primary care services furnished to the beneficiary in a relevant look-back period. And so they would be aligned to the participant provider that uh, delivered the plurality of uh, primary care services. Um, but also in ACO REACH, you have voluntarily, uh, voluntary alignment where the beneficiary essentially voluntarily chooses the participant provider. And it's important to note voluntary alignment always uh, takes precedent over claims-based alignment. And so because beneficiaries can voluntarily align in ACO reach, Derek, I, I'm curious to get your thoughts. Um, you know, what are some advantages? I, I know there's been some advantages to voluntary alignment from a benchmarking perspective that has been talked about. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yep, yep. So so voluntary alignment, in the, without getting too technical here, has a couple of attractive qualities to it. But, but one is that um, the uh, sort of basis for the benchmark for those beneficiaries is based off of the, the county rate book published by CMS. And so uh, for providers, many of whom are participating in the ACO REACH program that are more efficient than average, uh, utilizing that county rate benchmark uh, for uh, those patients is is a great starting point uh, because they know that they're uh, more efficient than average and more, the county rate benchmark more or less reflects average. And so uh, they have a, a stronger probability, I'll say, of, of being able to deliver savings uh, relative to to those benchmarks for those patients. So, so that, that's definitely an advantage. And then the, the other aspect to it is that um, uh, the risk adjustment model where there are uh, caps in place for uh, other beneficiaries that's relaxed for, for voluntarily uh, aligned beneficiaries and uh, you know, rightly so, or at least reasonably rightly so, where um, the, the references uh, to historical risk scores for your claims-based beneficiaries, um, it might make sense uh, that those uh, have caps in place because you actually have the historical data for those patients. But in this case, um, they are more or less not new for you. And so that uh, might take time to get a complete and accurate um, set of diagnoses for, for those patients. 
And so you, you uh, have more flexibility in terms of uh, how those uh, caps get applied, uh, which is favorable as well. Um, so, so the combination of those two things makes voluntary al alignment attractive from a benchmark perspective. But then the other element of it is, is um, you often will more or less kind of know uh, who the patient is. You've established a relationship good enough to, to drive that voluntary alignment. And I know you'll talk a bit more about that, but um, th that often has some, some good uh, dynamics from a clinical outcomes perspective and an integration of care perspective where uh, a claims-based uh, beneficiary uh, under prospective alignment here, uh, you may have had a relationship past tense, uh, but that may have weakened over time, whereas this is going to be uh, uh, much more uh, kind of real time uh, and, and that creates some benefits as well on the, on the cost side. Yeah, and so it's kind of an interesting Thing because in ACO reach, you, you are, you can market provided you follow restrictions um, it w engendered in the program, which we'll get to in a little bit. But, uh, you know, I, I'm curious, Derek, what, what have you seen in terms of how ACOs and their providers are, are driving voluntary alignment? Yep. Um, it, it, it's a, uh... It's a kind of a brave new world, uh, you know, historically, uh, voluntary alignment, you know, it did exist under MSSP, but we rarely saw voluntary alignment get to more than maybe 1% of a total patient base. And it's just because it was very hard to voluntarily align a beneficiary. They had to go online, uh, and, and, uh, click through a, a number of pages and, and align themselves to an ACO. And as you can imagine, like a Medicare eligible population, that creates all sorts of challenges. Uh, in this case, what we've seen is a, is a strong focus on uh, adjusting in-office workflows to drive that paper-based voluntary alignment uh, and, and really just make sure that you're, you're driving that uh, in the office. Uh, but then just from a, an attractiveness of, of that alignment perspective, um, we've seen uh, ACOs really focus on uh, sort of the marketability of their uh, reach ACOs and, and particularly uh, from a, a benefit enhancement perspective and a, and a beneficiary uh, incentive perspective. And so the combination of altering the office workflows and, and making uh, the ACO reach down and uh, clearly attractive to, to patients uh, has definitely been what we've seen uh, ACO reach entities really push over the last couple of years here. Yeah, it, it is a sort of a brave new world. Um, and <laughs> With that always comes uh, restrictions uh, in terms of what you can do for marketing because there you know you can imagine there's opportunities for abuse there from a, a targeting perspective if, if you will. Um, so there are restrictions that are set forth in uh, the participation agreements regarding marketing. And yeah, you know, I'll note as a general rule of thumb, the restrictions that apply to an ACO regarding marketing are also generally going to reply to the participant and preferred providers of that ACO. And, and the ACO really bears the responsibility of making sure its participant and preferred providers comply with the restrictions. Um, you know, I think, and I'll, I'll highlight a, a few of the restrictions that I, you know, I think uh, providers need to be aware of or, you know, uh, people attend, people 
considering transactions with ACO involving reach ACOs should be aware of. Um, you know, one is that there is a requirement that the ACO must submit all their marketing materials for CMF ap approval um, prior to any of the participant providers, preferred providers, or the ACO using those materials. Um, and there is the, the materials are deemed uh, approved after a certain amount of time um, once they're submitted with for review with proper certification. However, CMS can disapprove of those materials um, during any time during the performance year. And so it's, it's important to know, you know, what you can and can include in those marketing materials um, so that you don't fall, um, you don't get caught in that uh, that pitfall. Um, so one of those is, is, as I alluded to earlier, is you, you can't you can't do certain targeting um, with your marketing activities or marketing materials. Uh, so an ACO cannot discriminate or selectively target beneficiaries based on certain demographics, um, disability, medical history, evidence of insurance history, geography, uh, among other things. And so um, you want to make sure that your materials, you have a process in place to make sure your materials are not engaging in such discrimination. And additionally, there is a, a, pro a prohibition on targeting beneficiaries enrolled in other Medicare managed care plans, um, such as Medicare Advantage, for the purpose of recruiting them to re uh, a REACH ACO. And inversely, other Medicare managed care programs, they can't they can't uh, market to reach beneficiaries for purposes of recruiting them to Medicare managed care plans. Uh, so that's that's tar those are some targeting issues you need to be aware of. Uh, content wise, um, you know, marketing materials and marketing activities can't mislead beneficiaries about the the model. Um, they can't claim that the ACO or participant provider is recommended by CMS. And the one I'll stress here is they, they cannot expressly state or imply to a beneficiary that selecting the participant provider restricts or any way removes that beneficiaries right to select providers of their choosing that are other Medicare providers. There, there's a big emphasis that uh, beneficiaries are still free to choose their providers. Uh, Medicare beneficiaries are free to choose their, their providers that accept Medicare. And so it is imperative that um, ACOs and their providers do not imply otherwise. Uh, Derek also mentioned in-kind beneficiary engagement incentives that uh, potentially make the ACO, the REACH ACO, more attractive than fee-for-service. Uh, so in ACO REACH, there's some kind of unique beneficiary engagement incentives that REACH ACOs can provide to beneficiaries. As we know, beneficiary inducements to Medicare beneficiaries are generally prohibited in the Medicare program by the anti-kickback statute and also the beneficiary inducement CMP. However, under REACH, there are certain um, beneficiary engagement incentives that can be provided uh, since, and they fall within the CMS-sponsored model safe harbor to the safe uh, anti-kickback statute. 
uh, provided the ACO and its providers meet the applicable requirements under the model. And so, you know, I'll touch on those uh, requirements and restrictions a little bit here. Uh, so one thing that ACOs can provide is in-kind remuneration um, f there to patients, um, but the there are explicit conditions that must be that must be met for the in-kind remuneration. Uh, the, it must relate to the patient's care, for example, and um, ACOs and applicable providers must also maintain records sufficient to establish. Uh, whether the in-kind remuneration did uh, did actually meet the required conditions for its provision. Um, regarding beneficiary engagement incentives, so ACOs actually under ACO REACH may offer Part B cost-sharing support, as well as what's called chronic disease management rewards, provided once again they comply with the requirements set forth in participation agreement. Um, and if an ACO wants to offer these engagement incentives, they, they must be included in the ACO's initial uh, performance year selections and also included in the ACO's implementation plan that is submitted to CMS. And additionally, what I'll say about the engagement incentives and um, the beneficiary engagement incentives is that Applicable providers must, again, uh, must also keep sufficient records, and the ACO must compete, uh, keep sufficient records for the, these incentives. And additionally, the ACO must have a written agreement with its applicable participant and preferred providers for Part B cost-sharing support. Um, so, you know, that was a as Derek mentioned, it's kind of a brave new world on this marketing, but there are there's quite a bit of um, explicit restrictions on what you can do with marketing. It's important to be be mindful of those and be aware of those uh, as you drive voluntary uh, engagement. So there are some additional compliance issues I think that are worth getting into, Derek. Um, you know what a what are some of the main compliance issues that you are that you have identified with ACO Reach? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I think it would be impossible to talk about a uh, a risk based contract in the Medicare setting without mentioning uh, coding and risk adjustment as a potential compliance concern. I think the exact application of uh, how kind of coding and, and risk adjustment rules would apply here and kind of what recourse for uh, recovery there might be, I, I think is maybe a little bit murkier than uh, what we see in Medicare Advantage uh, or even the individual commercial market uh, where there's kind of clear uh, data validation audits. Uh, here it's a, a little bit less, less obvious, but I think um, ensuring that uh, you've got uh, resources dedicated to uh, coding accuracy and, and regulatory uh, changes is definitely going to be, be making sure that you, you have got uh, more or less all parties involved in, in, in any amount of coding uh, well-educated and they have the supporting uh, documentation that they need and the requirements uh, for, for coding for sure. Uh, uh, and, and then really the, the simple blocking and tackling of you know, to the extent that say you're doing a, a chart review 
you're, you're thinking about things and both an ad perspective as well as a delete perspective um, and, and just making sure that uh, you know, to the extent that document uh, conditions are documented uh, at the time of the encounter, um, they, they really should require uh, or affect patient care treatment or management. Uh, we're not we're not coding for coding's sake here. So I think we'd be remiss not to to highlight risk adjustment here as it's a, one a critical element of just success in the program, but but it's also a, a key compliance point. Then the other, I think, is is uh, executing against. Um, your, your health equity uh, goals and, and intentions. I think this is another one where um, the exact kind of ramifications of, of, of failure, I think, are, are less obvious, but um, certainly the expectation and, and just within the name itself, right, uh, that there's clearly a, a focus on uh, working through health equity issues. And so um, in the applications, it was required to uh, have a, a, a health equity plan and, and make sure that your ACO was with a line to solve health equity issues. And so making sure that we're actually executing against that while we're monitoring our, our progress and, and collecting data, I think are all going to be key elements there. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's, <laughs> I think it's probably fair to say that ACO reach arose out of some controversy. You know, I just as a bit mm -hmm. of background, the, the, the Biden administration scrapped GPDC in response to criticism. Um, particularly from congressional Democrats around uh, concerns that GPDC was privatizing Medicare and, and ACO reach, it was kind of the Biden administration's response to these efforts. And, you know, in addition to that, CMS emphasized that it, it had enhanced its monitoring and vetting efforts in the model. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's, it's fair to say that I would expect that the level of scrutiny over this model and compliance expectations will go beyond what might have been experienced previously. And you know, I, I think there's some other um, compliance issues in addition to what you, uh, you mentioned about health equity and also coding and risk adjustment. And one of those I would highlight is also the, the governance and ownership requirements under REACH. Um, so as most of us know, the, the ACO must be a distinct legal entity with its own governing body. Uh, and that governing body must have the exclusive authority to execute the functions of the ACO and make final decisions on behalf of it. And what's new to ACO reach relative to GPTC is the composition of, um, votes in term the composition of control of the governing body. So under ACO reach, 75% of the votes of the governing body must be held by participant providers. Whereas previously under uh, GPTC, GPDC, it was only 25%. And this is really, you know, this emphasizes that these are, these are provider-led organizations. And so I, I, I make that comment just because I think, you know, anyone interested in potentially uh, transactions involved with uh, a REACH ACO, you wanna, you'll want to you want to make sure that you're comfortable with that, um, that sort of uh, control arrangement for the governing body and, you know, 
potentially maybe some might want to explore the possibility of a, a friendly PC arrangement with participant providers of the ACO uh, as an alternative. Um, a couple of other notes regarding the governing board, uh, the consumer advocate and the, the governing board must consist of at least one uh, consumer advocate as well as one beneficiary representative. And this is also a change from GPDC in that both the consumer advocate and beneficiary representative must have voting rights and they cannot be the same person. Uh, the la and lastly, I'll highlight one um, new change regarding ownership is that uh, no person or entity that holds an ownership interest in a standard or new ACO, there are three types of ACO, standard, new, and high needs. If you own a interest in a standard, ownership interest in a standard or new ACO, you cannot hold an interest in a high needs ACO that operates in the same ACO service area. And ownership interest, just so everyone knows, is defined to be 5% or greater combined direct or indirect ownership interest in the ACO. Um, the last thing I'll get to on, on compliance is downstream provider contracting. You know, I think uh, th this is a bit of a bedrock to the the program the model because the, the relationship between the providers and the ACO is really going to be what drives success. And um but there so there are explicit requirements regarding these provider contracts. And one of which is unless uh, two applicable exceptions apply, uh, which I won't fully describe here, uh the ACO must have executed written agreements with each of its participant and preferred providers, and they must at a minimum satisfy the prescribed requirements set forth in an ACO's participation agreement. So you know, for those who have clients that are contemplating transactions with REACH ACOs, um, you'll probably want to make sure that the, the you know, form agreements for the ACO comply with these requirements set forth in the participation agreement. Uh, additionally, um, ACOs must require their participant and preferred providers to comply with many requirements set forth in participation agreement. I touched on this a little bit with the marketing restrictions. Um, so, you know, before joining an ACO, a provider will will want to carefully review the ACO provider agreement, understand what obligations the provider will have under the agreement and how certain responsibilities, you know, such as the record keeping requirements that I mentioned in the, in the uh, marketing restrictions, um, how those are going to, how that responsibility is going to be allocated and does the provider have the infrastructure to handle that. Um, and if, uh, so as an aside, um, Physicians and non-physician practitioners can be added to a participant during a performance year only in limited circumstances. And also, furthermore, no provider, regardless of the, the type of provider, can participate in capitation for a performance year in which they are added during. Um, so it's all that I, I add that to say you know, providers probably or, or may prefer to join ACOs for participation at the start of a subsequent performance year rather than, than during a performance year. Um, 
so that's, you know, I think that touches on some of the main compliance issues. And I, I think, Derek, you know, from my perspective, it's coordination among ACOs and their providers is going to be key in making sure there's compliance success throughout the program and make sure, making sure that there's a, a strong governing body that's monitoring that the ACO is actually executing against its health equity plan and other um, other plans. Uh, are there any other you know, last words regarding compliance that you have? Yeah, I, I think uh, well said. This is not exactly a, a set it and forget it type type model. It's definitely going to require active management and, and coordination. Uh, and so um, where I, I think uh, historically, say, compliance with uh, the MSSP program was fairly straightforward. I think there's a whole lot of complexity that comes along with all that model flexibility and, and all the bells and whistles that come with, with the REACH ACO program. And so definitely requires a lot more active monitoring. Well, great. Well, that wraps up the content we were we wanted to cover today regarding ACO REACH. Uh, I really thank the listeners for sticking with us, and I hope you found this uh, this content beneficial as you learn more about the, uh, the ACO REACH program. Great. Thanks so much, Kevin. Great talking to you. Thanks, Derek. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.